Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Mark Farmer. Mark is the CEO of the Bridge Academy Trust consisting of eight schools in Essex. Mark, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's program. Welcome, not, not a problem at all. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Mark. Um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. So if we dive in by taking that word leader aside for a moment and considering that in a bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Um, I think the first thing that any leader in any walk of life has got to know and consider and then really buy into is what's the goal? What's the aim? What is it that you're trying to achieve and, and for who? And I think if they've got the answers to those questions really clearly in their head, then then they're at the starting point, really. If, if, they, if they haven't got any of those sort of concepts or information stored or really clear, then I think they're, they're going to struggle from the start. But that, that would certainly be my, my first sort of point of recommendation is know what it is that you are either charged with achieving or you want to achieve yourself and then know for what reason, for who, and then go about the how. And if we think about your sort of personal leadership style, Mark, how would you describe that? Um, I think always having that end, end goal in sight is where I try to start from. And then obviously working with an educational establishment is keeping uh, always the forefront of my mind about the child and the children and their journey and how it impacts on them. Uh, Then it's a case of inspiring. Um, And I wouldn't say convincing others to get on the, on the same journey that you want to achieve because through, through inspiring and telling the story of what you want to try and achieve, then, then others should want to come on board uh, and there should never be any problems with that. So it's one of inspiring, leading, motivating others, getting them to actually inspire and lead others throughout the institution so that, again, in our um, work, work of life with, within education, it's making sure that children get the absolute best possible deal and provision mm. that they can. And that, that can be adapted to, to anything from, from sport to business uh, and, again, back to education. I think the need for leaders to inspire that you've raised there, Mark, is incredibly important. And we're certainly seeing examples of that now, aren't we, in the times of sort of COVID-19? Because when we go through a crisis such as this and people need that little bit of direction, that little bit of reassurance amid all the worry and all the uncertainty, it is natural to look up the hierarchical ladder in your organisation, business or institution and look to your leaders for that direction when you need it. But when you are the person at the uh, the top of the tree, as it were, who is the leader and there's nobody above you to refer to, where is it that you look to for that inspiration as and when you need it? Um. Well, firstly, I, I look back to that guardian of the flame sort of mantra is, is, is what is it that we are all about and what it is that I am held accountable and responsible and trying to achieve. And and first and foremost, if I go back to making any decision, as long as I re- revisit what it is we're trying to achieve and what our core purpose is, then, then that gives me confidence to make some, at times, as you say, some really crucial and, and vital decisions. Um, as to where I look outside of myself and the organisation, then 
there is a lot of inspirational leaders up and down the country in various organisations that uh, I have either worked with before or I've heard or I've read or I've met. And, and, and so I, I go, to, go to those sort of people and, and they're not always in education. So I do take a lot of my own inspiration and guidance from a range of leaders throughout all walks of life within our own country and beyond as well. Um, obviously, in, in my organisation, I, I take some advice from the government and from the Department for Education. Um, but when some of it has had to be a little bit of interpretation, I, I, I go outside and seek what others are doing as, as well. But, but ultimately, when it is my responsibility and my decision, I take all that information, I come back to the, the core purpose of what it is that we are all about. And that makes it quite easy then to make a decision going forward. And just how difficult during this sort of COVID-19 period has it been managing the school through this? Because I can imagine it has thrown up some incredible challenges during the lockdown. The main the main problem it's thrown is, um, I'm not saying all leaders are control freaks, um, or, or that all head teachers, in fact, are control freaks, but we like to be in control of what it is that we are doing because we got to where we are because we, we like to think we were quite successful at what we've done previously. But throughout this whole period, there's been too many unknown unknowns. And the only thing that we know is that there is more unknowns to come. So my main uh, issue has been I've got eight very, very inspirational school leaders at, at my eight schools. My biggest problem has been to try and maintain their sense of confidence and direction. And in doing so, by taking the key decisions out of their responsibility and making myself totally accountable and then just giving them the confidence to say, it's okay, we've made the decision. As long as you go within the guidelines we've set and anything then comes back, it comes back to myself. So it's almost taking that, that, that burden off their shoulders onto your own at these times of crises so they can do the job that they should be doing, which is leading their own staff and their own communities and their own children with confidence and knowing that, therefore, the provision they put in place is still going to be the best it possibly can. Because it's, it's the well-being of those leaders, the well-being of all the staff that we employ, and then the well-being of the children and, and the communities that, that's most difficult. So my job is to make sure that I maintain the well-being and confidence and, and, and energy of those dynamic leaders that work closely with me and, and for the, I don't know, 4,000 other individual stakeholders that we, we, we work with. Mm. And on this week's show, Mark, what we are trying to do is we're trying to find some silver lining in what has been an enormously dark and dense cloud in what has been an incredibly sensitive and difficult time for many. So looking back over this sort of lockdown period, is there anything positive that you and the school can take from this experience? Um, I, I think for, for me, there's been probably three key aspects that we will take as positives and go on from that. The first one is, is one of collaboration. We, we've had a real sense of, of one organisation across the eight schools. There are two different geographic locations and we've had one hub in one area in Chelmsford and one in Ongar. And all of the schools have, and all the school leaders have come together as one. So that's really helped for that collaboration. The second, the second key thing has been the work of our teachers and tutors in that pastoral care and attention they've given all the families and the children that has 
has, has really been focused. And so I think that's something that we can definitely build upon when we go back to a new normal, whatever that is, in knowing that the well-being of the children has been really well thought of and cared for and will continue as they start to come back. And the last one has been has been forcing us to, to think of new and innovative ways to carry on working. You know, the remote access, the, the ability to work remotely via Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever other, other software or or, or devices we've got. And I think that is something that it won't take over how we go back to work, but it will certainly be part of how we work for the future. Um, and I, I, I think there are there are many, many positives we will take. And that's not to say that it was a good thing that this happened in, in, at all. It wasn't, and it's not. But we are always learning. And, and I think that's key for anyone in education is that it doesn't matter if you're a child just starting in reception or, or someone just finishing their A-levels or a member of staff or a head teacher or CEO. We are always learning new things and being flexible and able to adapt. And that's what we've got to teach our young children. It's not just about qualifications. It's about how they're going to adapt to the world when they leave school and be able to adapt and be successful in that world as we move forward. And I think this period of COVID has taught us that, that very key skill that we have to be adaptable, we have to be flexible, and we have to know how we're going to circumnavigate things that we maybe haven't faced before. So, yeah, there are a lot of positives to take from it. I can certainly see your point there, Mark. I think it has forced the hand of people to be innovative. It has forced people to adapt and that will ultimately serve them well in the long run. But also there are some features of this lockdown period, as you say there, particularly sort of that move toward remote working that could well form part of how business, how education, how various industries end up operating in this country going forward from here. And if we do focus on what the future holds just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, I'm interested to know what you feel is next for yourself for the Bridge Academy Trust and what you really hope to achieve over the next 12 to 18 months as we look to adapt as a society to the new normal. Um, I think my number one priority as we move back in the next 18 months is to make sure that the health and well-being of all the children and all the staff that we employ is as good as it can be and continues to be going forward because there is still understandably a lot of nervousness out there in the ether so that has got to be the number one factor Obviously, within education, we are places of learning first and foremost. So it's, it's a case of getting the routines back and getting the learning going again for everybody um, and, and, and working within the parameters that we're going to have to work in, in order to do the best by our children, by our staff and for their families uh, ongoing. No doubt there'll be some acceleration that will have to be taken place, but that cannot take place unless the very first thing is done, which is that people... And by that, I do mean the children, but most importantly as well, the staff feel confident, comfortable uh, in order to to deliver uh, and to receive that that learning that's going to take place. And the state, the well-being, the health, mental well-being, physical well-being of everybody that's going to be foremost in everybody's minds when, when they return in September. 
Let's certainly hope that the education sector does adjust well when schools do return in earnest in September for sure, because it's going to be a very uncertain time, um, especially mental health wise, because even though that sort of social isolation aspect is no longer going to be the case, it won't be the classroom environment that pupils were used to beforehand. And of course, there are still a great many variables in all of this, for example, the possibility of a second wave of cases. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive from here for sure. Absolutely, and and what I would say is that um, I am I am a, a chief executive officer of of a multi academy trust with eight schools, and I certainly could not uh, talking going under the topic of leadership have got through this without the leadership of my trustees, my my own senior team, and the eight wonderful head teachers that have been leading our schools because they they themselves have exerted and shown and demonstrated daily what leadership truly looks like and, and, and truly is, and so. To them, I'm thankful on behalf of the thousands of children and families that we serve because without their leadership, um, things would have been um, so much worse than what it is. So uh, they're there to be congratulated on their their leadership. And, and they haven't all done it the same. And I think that's another feature of leadership. It's, it's different in different circumstances. So uh, I, I, I couldn't go without saying a big thank you to the leaders that I work with. Of course, because people really have brought the best out of themselves in this time of adversity, Mark. You're absolutely right. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the show today as well, I must say. And I think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on with us in future, just to see how things are getting on at that point in time. Anytime. An absolute pleasure. Take care. Take care, Mark. Um, do also take care and um, stay safer, most importantly, with all still going on, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this one yet. And that goes most importantly for those tuning into today's episode. Do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and look after others, because it does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and most importantly, saving lives. I was speaking today to Mark Farmer, the CEO of Bridge Academy Trust in Essex. And coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff himself. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. 
and I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South 
Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially I say about Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a, a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, if maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? 
Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke make a joke about that and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, 
you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, me laugh that if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you were a young man when this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And, and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven years that. Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently, since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. 
And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath and there was nobody and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard-nosed professionals good good teammates mm. good socially and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago of course with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers we, we still got on our wives got on all together all those years later it didn't just finish after '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was. A big part, I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players, we have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word word is team. The word is is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking—if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single minded. Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks 
um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.